after the premeditated murder of his half-brother Amnon, Absalom flees from the consequences of his crime only to desire a return to the kingdom for less than honorable reasons. This is the 29th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our Old Covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 14. As we move into chapter 14, 2 Samuel and chapter 14, the first 25 verses, 2 Samuel chapter 14, 1 through 25, beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning as God speaks to us of the return of the rebellious Absalom. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner and put on now mourning apparel and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that hath a long time mourned for the dead. And come to the king and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spake to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and did obeisance and said, Help, O king! And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, I am indeed a widow woman, and mine husband is dead. And thy handmaid had two sons, and the two strove together in the field, and there was none to part them. But the one smote the other and slew him. And behold, the whole family is risen up against thine handmaid. And they said, Deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him for the life of his brother whom he slew. And we will destroy the heir also. And so they shall quench my coal which is left and shall not leave to my husband neither name nor remainder upon the earth. And the king said unto the woman, Go to thine house, and I will give charge concerning thee. And the woman of Tekoa said unto the king, My lord, O king, the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, Whosoever saith aught unto thee, bring him to me, and he shall not touch thee any more. Then said she, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord thy God, that thou wouldest not suffer the revenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of thy son fall to the earth. Then the woman said, Let thine handmaiden, I pray thee, speak one word unto my lord the king. And he said, Say on. And the woman said, Wherefore then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty, in that the king doth not fetch home again his banished. For we must needs die, and are as waters spit on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. Now therefore, that I am come to speak of this thing unto my lord the king. It is because the people have made me afraid. And thy handmaiden said, I will now speak unto the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his handmaid. For the king will hear to deliver his handmaid out of the hand of the man that would destroy me and my son together out of the inheritance of God. Then thine handmaid said, The word of my lord 
the king shall now be comfortable. For as an angel of God, so is my Lord the king to discern good and bad. Therefore the Lord thy God will be with thee. Then the king answered and said unto the woman, Hide not from me, I pray thee, the thing that I shall ask thee. And the woman said, Let my lord the king now speak. And the king said, Is not the hand of Joab with thee in all this? And the woman answered and said, As thy soul liveth, my lord, the king, none can turn to the right hand or to the left from aught that my lord the king hath spoken. For thy servant Joab, he bade me, and he put all these words in the mouth of thine handmaiden. To fetch about this form of speech hath thy servant Joab done this thing. And my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of an angel of God, to know all things that are in the earth. And the king said unto Joab, Behold now, I have done this thing. Go therefore, bring the young man Absalom again. And Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today thy servant knoweth that I have found grace in thy sight, my lord, O king, in that the king hath fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Gersha and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. But in all Israel there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, the elder at Ephesus, Timothy, in his first epistle to Timothy, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5 through verse 11, by the same Spirit, the apostle says this, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust." Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but God's word stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day with much learning and much teaching. Now the situation between Amnon and Tamar did not have to end in murder and utter destruction of the kingdom of God under David. If only the law of God was carefully followed. Since Tamar was actually, as we've already determined, a pure young woman, and even though she was viciously violated, according to the law of God, it didn't have to end in the assassination of Amnon by Absalom two years later. The mandatory maximum death penalty for rape was only prescribed for the individual that violated the woman which was either engaged to be married or was married. Tamar was neither. As far as the incest, as disgusting as that is, 
That too is not a capital crime. Sin, yes. Disgusting, yes. Absolutely. But it did not warrant death, at least not according to the historical case study concerning Canaan with the incest with his grandmother. Actually, it was the grandmother that was violated, Noah's wife. When Canaan committed that act, God did not prescribe death, but cursed him, not requiring him to be executed. Amnon could have restored Tamar's honor if he would have made restitution by paying the bride price or by marrying her. His refusal, coupled with David's unwillingness to vindicate his daughter and bring Amnon to justice, exacerbated Absalom's anger. Now the question might arise, how would God's law be applied in our modern day? That's the rub. Here's the law of God. It's clear how it was to be applied in ancient Israel. But now the law is holy, just, and good. It is a universal law. How would that law be applied in our modern day to the situation where a woman who was neither engaged or married, how could she secure the bride price of restitution? How would judges figure out how much to pay? In Israel's day, it was X amount of shekels. What about today? How do we figure that out? What would be the monetary amount? How would we do this? How would we bring God's law into the modern realm? As it was adjudicated in Israel, so too would it have to be adjudicated here in the courts. The case would have to be brought before a court as a civil suit against the offender. Now sadly, in our day today, as I know, as you know, there's little confidence in our American law system. So we would have to be trusting God to bring about a right judgment in such a case. Perhaps, in a perfect world, if the church had a reputable court system, its ministers might be called in to decide how to make a monetary restoration. The fact, however, remains that the modern equivalent of the ancient bride price would be determined by the civil court. The judges would not only take the rape into consideration, but the emotional, physical, spiritual, and social trauma that that rape would cause in order to come up with a fair monetary settlement, whatever that was. So you see, we still could use God's law in the modern realm. Simply put, the victim would be suing for monetary damages in a civil proceeding. In the situation where an attack was against a married or an engaged woman, the maximum penalty would be death since there is a violation and an assault against the marriage covenant. Now, since the marriage union is a sacred union representing the bond between Christ and his church, God views any violation of that union very seriously. And that's why rape to a married woman or an engaged woman is so much a serious, more serious crime, a capital offense. God requires the death penalty for any person, government, or institution which molests his church, for she is his blood-bought bride, and he is very jealous over her. And that's why you have the differences with the penalties. David's unwillingness to act according to the law of God by calling in the elders. Remember, he didn't even call in the elders. Unilaterally, he decided to do nothing. Angry, yes. Naturally, but doing nothing. So David's unwillingness to act according to the law by calling in the elders and recusing himself for judgment because that's what he should have done. He was too close to the situation. That paved the way for Absalom's wrath. And so after shearing his adversary, ironically during the celebration of the sheep shearing, 
Absalom flees to Geisha. Now in exile, the scripture sets up the situation this way. In verse 37 of 2 Samuel 13, But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, and that is where he stayed. At that point, we read this, And David mourned for his son every day. The soul of the King David longed to go forth unto Absalom every day, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. But he wanted to bring back his son. He was longing for Absalom. And yet, Absalom had committed premeditated murder. In spite of his self-deluded notion that he was a better judge than the elders of Israel, he runs, he flees, he puts himself willfully in exile, knowing that he did evil in the sight of God. Now, of course, if Absalom immediately rushed in upon Amnon after the assault, we might have regarded it as a crime of passion. Maybe there would have been a, a different judgment concerning the situation. But that's not what he did. He waited two years and plotted. He planned. He plotted. He even conspired with others to kill his half-brother Amnon. And since it was premeditated, Absalom could not flee to a city of refuge. Instead, he flees to the king of Gesha, using that area as a city of refuge. This was his grandfather on his mother's side in order to avoid any repercussions. This actually was to be used as a city of refuge. No one was going to go there to kill him. It might be assumed even hinted at from the narrative that Absalom may have waited the two years because he really didn't want any restitution for his sister, according to the law, since he did not press the issue to his father. We don't see Absalom running to his father and saying, Now, Father, we need to do it this way. We have to get it right this way. Here's the law. No, he didn't want any restitution. We have to assume that. This may be because he wanted to kill Amnon all along. Remember, if he gets rid of Amnon, he's next in line for the throne. This, of course, is entirely possible since he had determined in his own mind, in the delusion of his own mind, that he was a better judge, that he was a better ruler than his father. And we see that later on. And so his motivations were not honorable at all, but rather self-serving. God is careful to impress upon the reader that despite the wicked vigilantism of his son Absalom, David is putting that out of his mind and he's mourning for his son to return, to be reconciled. It seems also clear that by this time in the king's mind... The murder of Amnon was resolved. No, he's dead. Can't do anything about that. I'm not going to mourn about that anymore. I can't fix that, but I can fix the thing with Absalom. Amnon was dead. Nothing I could do about it. The damage was done. He might have been even thinking, well, maybe he got what he deserved. He might have been thinking that since Amnon forcibly raped his sister, his death was providential, since in certain instances, rape is punishable by death. Whatever the thoughts were of the king, by this time he is only interested in reconciliation with the murderous Absalom. He had lost one son, and of course, as a father, he doesn't want to lose the the other son, especially the heir to the throne. David desired nothing more than to move on from that terrible event 
to focus upon what he could remedy. And he thought he could remedy the situation with Absalom. But that remedy was not going to happen because he didn't start out on the right foot with the law of God. David's lamentation for his son tells us of his paternal feelings for his son, but they were perverted. Adam Clark comments, notice what he says, quote, we find that David had a very strong paternal affection for this young man. Now, note this, even though Clark says this young man, he wasn't all that young, okay? He was a middle-aged, he was, he was grown, he wasn't a kid, he wasn't a teenager, who appears to have had little to commend him but the beauty of his person. David wished either to go to him or to bring him back, for the hand of time had now wiped off his tears for the death of his son Amnon. Joab had marked this disposition and took care to work on it in order to procure the return of Absalom. It would have been well for all parties had Absalom ended his days at Gezer. His return, however, brought increasing wretchedness to his unfortunate father." You see, one might think at this point in the narrative that if Absalom returns and they all kiss and make up, everything would be fine. But it was only the beginning of more tragedy. This situation of his exile lasted for three entire years. And during this, as we read, Joab was looking at David and saying, we need to bring comfort back to the king. Joab hatches, instead of just going straight to the king, and this is just so incredible, if you've got something to say, just say it. But Joab, being the cunning serpentine man that he was, hatches an elaborate plan to persuade the king to recall Absalom to the house of David. Job's plan tells us so much about his character. Very crafty, very manipulative. He had also proven himself as a murderous man, which may have been the motive for negotiating Absalom's return. He could relate. So often do the birds of a feather flock together. If you remember Job's premeditated murder of Abner, that was outrightly forgiven. David simply swept it under the rug in an effort to bring Joab to to justice without bringing Joab to any justice. Remember, all he did was weep and, and cast curses upon Joab. So he really wasn't interested in justice. David had Joab as his war chief. And he needed Joab, even though Joab deserved death. The reason behind David's reluctance to initially bring Joab to justice for Abner's murder in the first place was that the king feared Joab. When we read this in 2 Samuel 3, 9, notice what David says. And I am this day, after Abner is slain, though anointed king, even though I am the king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, they are too hard for me. I'm going to leave it up to God to deal with them. And yet he's the king. That phrase, too hard for me, implies that Joab and the sons of Zeruiah were cruel men, calculating men, murderous men, and David was too soft in bringing hard sentences against them. This is obviously a fault in David, which obviously here, as we read, is going to haunt him throughout his reign. And so instead of rightly dealing with the murder of Abner, he lets Joab and Abishai off without so much as a slap on the wrist and leaves the justice to God. Now, Joab is probably, at this point, it seems to me that Joab, at this point, is relating to the situation between Amnon and Absalom. Consider the strategy. Instead of addressing the king outrightly, Joab employs the assistance of a woman from Tekoa. 
But this was not just any woman. She too was much like Joab, very cunning, very crafty, very manipulative. The word used for wise, which is identifying this woman, is actually the word for cunning. It wasn't so much that she was wise according to the word of God, but she was actually cunning, or she was subtle like that of a serpent. We see this in verse 2. And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a cunning, subtle woman and said unto her, Do this for me. Make yourself a mourner. Make believe. Deceive the king and go to him. Don't look good. Don't anoint your head with oil. Be as a woman that had been mourning for the dead for a long time. Deceive the king. Make believe that you are something that you are actually not. And that is very, very easy for people who are not really what they say they are. So first, we read that she was from a very far off city within the tribe of Judah. Now this fact, and this is what makes Joab so cunning, he says, I'm not going to get someone that David might know from his locality, not from the city of Jerusalem. I'm going to get someone from far away. Because that would make it difficult for David to fact check to see if the woman was really who she said she was. Secondly, it's not a man that Joab sends, but a woman. In other words, her gender, at least Joab was thinking this, her gender would be used to manipulate the king since he would be not so harsh with a woman as he might be with a man. And of course, the third point is she was a widow. She was to be pitied. This would identify her as someone who had no covenant headship, which made her very vulnerable to others to manipulate her, who might take advantage of her and not bring her justice in any given situation. And therefore, she is looking to the king. She's looking to the king. I have no covering. I am a widow. I just had sons. And here's the situation. But notice when she comes before the king, the first thing she does, she bows before the king. She shows herself submissive. She shows herself an honorable woman to honor the king, to fear the king. And seeing she has no husband to stand for her, David naturally felt compelled to bring her comfort by bringing forth justice in her behalf. Fourthly, she was to make believe that she was mourning for the death of her son. She was already a widow, but now she was mourning the death of her son. This fact would add to the king's pity and compassion because he can relate it would further soften him to agree to her request because now he could relate. She was mourning for the death of a loved one, targeting David's emotions, hoping to move the compassion of the king. In addition to the mourning over Amnon, David at this point was mourning daily over the, over the, the, the fact that Absalom had left. Perhaps he was even now mourning or thinking back when she brings up this, this story and mourning over the dead. Could, could it be that David was even thinking about the baby that died with Bathsheba? Perhaps he was considering even Abner and, of course, Amnon. You see, David, at this point, is a man of many sorrows. And this woman is targeting his emotion to manipulate him. David's mourning over the dead was coupled with the mourning over the rape of his daughter Tamnar. So here's a man just racked with with sorrow and, and, and torment. And so what this woman was doing, she was unearthing all of David's emotions as a pretext to move him in a certain direction, all of which was according to Joab's plan. Finally, the situation that the woman posited 
was almost identical to the situation that David faced. And yet, because she was so cunning, she was able, at least initially, to cloak the similarities in such a way that David was unable to make the connection that he was being played. Knowing that David's sorrow was over his two sons, this woman craftily conceals her story according to a similar situation. So she is not only inferring that David should sympathize with her situation, but he should now empathize with her situation, seeing that he, too, has experienced the same sorrowful reality. Now consider some of the particulars of her remarks. She has two sons. Two sons are the object of her story. Secondly, they fought, and there was no one to stop them. Therefore, the one killed the other. Thirdly, as a result, the entire family became her enemy, wanting to execute the son. Number four, she then tells David that the execution of her son would put an end, and this is important, would put an end to the generational legacy of her family. She uses the word heir. That's who Absalom was at this point. He was the heir. Kill the heir, your whole lineage, your whole dynasty is is finished. And that must have hit David like a ton of bricks since Absalom was now the rightful heir to the throne. Would David, would David destroy the heir? Would David then have no heir, as the woman put it, the remembrance of her husband's name upon the earth? The language she uses is very graphic. Notice, it's, it's not language that we use today, but she says this, and so they shall quench my coal which is left. She describes her son as the light of her life. And she's saying, will they extinguish the fire of my and my husband's legacy? The burning light that has come from our loins? That is what she's intending. Is that what they want to do? That's what they want to do? And, and are you going to allow that, King David? Adam Clark explains, he says, quote, a man and his descendants or successors are often termed in scripture as a lamp or light. To raise up a lamp to a person signifies his having a posterity to continue his name and family upon the earth. Thus, to quench my coal that is left means destroying all hope of posterity and extinguishing the family from among the people, end quote. David could relate to that. So hearing this, interestingly enough, the king tells the woman that she should go home and wait for his judgment. That's unlike David in, in, a, in a real way, because usually David gives judgment right away, but he doesn't hear. He waits, because at this point, I'm sure he was conflicted. What is he going to do? And the king said unto the woman, Go to thine house, and I will give thee charge concerning thee. He's in a pickle. Apparently, he wants to put off any recommendation since whatever he says could be difficult in his own personal situation with Absalom. So he puts off any counsel. If he says, Forgive the son, then justice is perverted. Even though the crime that this woman was explaining was manslaughter. Remember, this, this crime was not premeditated murder. It was different. She's positing a different crime. The sons fought, one was killed. That's manslaughter. That's not premeditated murder. So even though the crime that this woman was explaining was manslaughter and not a premeditated offense, David is still unable to judge immediately. Because in the case of manslaughter, reparations had to be made to the offended party, usually the family. There should be no 
vengeance or revenger of blood. In this woman's case, however, she being a widow woman, reparations could not be paid. A payment could not be paid. And so the people, knowing that she couldn't pay reparations in a manslaughter case, well, we'll just take the life of your son. Your last son. The only son you have left. However, one remedy that David should have, if he was thinking properly, the law did not require the death of the son, even if the woman couldn't pay any kind of restitution. The law could place the son in a servant position. He could pay back whatever the debt was required, whatever was required of the debt, whatever they deemed as a payment, and he could go into a bond-servant agreement. He didn't have to be killed. But they wanted to kill him, and that's what she posited for David. Now, that should have been David's remedy. He should have made the decree that the people that wanted to kill the son would not be allowed to kill the son because it's not murder, it's manslaughter, and the penalty, since the woman couldn't pay money, the son should then pay it back in his servant kind of remedy. He could have easily, easily intervened by telling the people that they were wrong because this was not murder. And yet, with all his reading and all of his writing of the Law of Moses in his own hand, at this point, because he's so close to the situation, he couldn't give an answer. And that is unfortunate because what he should have done and what we learn from this is when we are very close to a situation and we can't judge properly, we call in help. David did not call in the elders of Israel. He should have. Maybe they could have cleared the path for a righteous judgment. So David was unable to answer since his emotions had clouded everything that he thought. Anything he said could be used in this situation with Amnon and Absalom, but he was afraid to to judge. So hearing this, that David is saying, I'm going to put off judgment, that wasn't good enough for the woman. She wanted to hear judgment now. And therefore she persists for an answer immediately. Notice verse 9. And the woman of Tekoa said unto the king, My lord, O king, the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. In, in other words, it seems as if the woman is saying to the king that whatever you say, if you decree that my son be forgiven without any repercussions immediately, even if your judgment is wrong, even if your judgment is held against you, it'll be on me, not on you. It'll be against me and my father's house. The king and his throne will be guiltless. The iniquity will be on me and my father's house. So just tell us that you are just outwardly forgiving my son. Give a no guilty. Give a go free judgment. Get it out of jail free answer. And if the people don't like it, you can blame me. That's what she's saying. The problem with this recommendation is the king is always going to be held accountable for his judgments. That wasn't even possible. If the king said thus, then that was thus. You can't say, well, the woman told me that she'd it'd be on her. It wouldn't work like that. Because all leaders are held responsible and will be held accountable for the policies they put into action. They can't say, oh, because so-and-so gave me $1,000 for my campaign, now we got to do what they say. And that's on them. Can't do that. No one can say, my constituents made me do it. 
The people that funded my campaign made me do it. I promised that I would do it. Now I must do it. Governing delegates, senators, executive officers, ministers, judges, and any and every segment of leadership, including fathers and mothers, are held accountable to the standards of God's law and how they judge sins and crimes. No one can say, well, someone else told me to do this or that. But as we shall see, whenever God's law is not followed, the results are catastrophic. And they are systemic. Hearing this, David crumbles. He just succumbs. His integrity by this point is compromised. His emotions are raw. And as a result, the application of God's judgment is frustrated and the Davidic kingdom continues its long slide downward into chaos. And the king said, Whosoever saith aught unto thee, bring him to me, and he shall not touch thee any more. Then said she, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord thy God, that thou wouldest not suffer the revengers of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of thy son fall to the earth. Now this was a solemn pledge that the king made while holding court. It couldn't be unsaid. It couldn't be undone. It was the king's decree and it was universal. Moreover, it was declaring a universal principle that had to be followed in every case. Now David, whether he knew it or not, was setting forth a judicial precedence which would set the standard for every case like that one. And by David's decree, the woman gets what she wanted. Unbeknown to David, Joab too, he gets what he wants. He receives the decision that he wanted as well. And once the decree is spoken and recorded as law from the mouth of the king, from the king's lips, the woman pounces on the real purpose of her ruse. Verse 12 and following. Then the woman said, Let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak one more word unto my lord the king. And he said, Okay, it's all settled. What do you got to say for yourself? Say on. And the woman said, Wherefore then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty, in that the king doth not fetch home again his banished. Adam Clark clearly explains exactly what the woman is saying when he says, quote, The woman, having now got the king's promise confirmed by an oath that her son should not suffer for the murder of his brother, comes immediately to her conclusion. Is not the king to blame? Does he now act a consistent part? Is he willing to pardon the meanest of his subjects the murder of a brother at the instance of a poor widow? And is he not willing to pardon his son Absalom? whose restoration to favor is the desire of the whole nation. Because that's what was happening. The whole nation wanted him back. Joab knew that. He continues, Is not that clemency to be refused to the king's son, the hope of the nation and heir to the throne, which is shown to a private individual whose death or life can only be of consequence to one family? Why therefore dost thou not bring back thy banished child? That was the ruse. In an attempt to explain further, the woman employs a kind of a parable. Notice she says this in verse 14. For we must needs die, and as water is spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again, neither doth God respect any person, yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. It's as if she's saying, whatever is done is done. 
everyone must die sooner or later. And even though Amnon is dead, killing Absalom will not bring him back to life. His crime was indeed evil. He may have deserved to die, but you failed in your duty as a judge to exact a penalty, any penalty. She's probably even insinuating that we can all understand Absalom seeking to avenge his sister's honor. I mean, everyone recognized that, but murder wasn't the way. To Absalom, Amnon's life, she is saying, is no more than waters built on the ground. He's dead. You can't get him back to life. You can't get water out of the ground after it's spilt. And so according to your words, O king, she is saying, pardon Absalom's crime. Show him mercy. Show him clemency. Restore him to your favor. Recall him to the kingdom. Next, the woman defends herself. Since David obviously now knows that he's been deceived and that he's been manipulated by this woman. And he is angry. Now therefore, that I am come to speak of this thing unto my Lord, it is because the people have made me afraid. Notice, she now has to give an excuse because she knows the king is going to be angry. And thy handmaiden said, I will now speak unto the king, that it may be that the king will perform the request of his handmaid. For the king will hear to deliver his handmaid out of the hand of the man that would destroy me and my son together out of the inheritance of God. Then thine handmaiden said, The word of my lord the king shall now be comfortable. Notice what she's saying. For as an angel of God, so is my lord the king to discern good and bad. Therefore the Lord thy God will be with thee. Now David knows absolutely that he's been deceived. And so he asks very clearly, Who put you up to this? Hide not from me, I pray thee, the thing that I shall ask thee. And the woman said, Let my lord the king now speak. And he said, Is not the hand of Job with thee in all of this? Obviously upset. Clearly the woman is now afraid. She has obviously angered the king in her attempt to calm what might be perceived as the king's anger. She flatters him by implying that his decree was as wise as the messengers of God and that he should not be angry as to his decision because he can discern both good and bad. And my Lord is wise according to the wisdom of an angel of God to know all things that are in earth. And yet, she hastens to say that David's words must stand as law. In other words, it's a done deal. You said it. It's now law. You can't go back on your word. As thy soul liveth, my lord the king, none can turn to the right hand or to the left from aught that my king, my lord the king, had spoken. So she puts the nail in it and it has to stand. She then clearly indicts Joab, confirming the king's suspicion in verse 20. Joab has done this thing. Now, it's interesting that even though Joab put the woman up to this, either by bribing her or threatening her, she too, we, as we see, she too is guilty. No one can ever say that another entity made them do this thing or that thing. She could not plead that she had no choice. There's always a choice. She cannot claim that she would do a thing and, and then be not culpable for that thing simply because of a bribe or a threat or any other means that have, may have been employed to get her to act in a certain way. We all have to make a choice and we're all accountable to that choice. While she never said it in so many words, she is actually, at this point, using the excuse that Adam and Eve gave to God by blaming a multitude of reasons why they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She can't do that. What is also curious is that in time past, whenever David was deceived, he dealt harshly with the deceiver. We've seen that already. And yet in this instance... Perhaps because she was a woman whom he pitied, 
perhaps she had a point that he took to heart, he withheld any punishment. You can't just deceive the king and get away with it, but she did. There isn't even a rebuke recorded because here you find both Joab and this woman guilty of deception. Again, telling something about both their character, but they're not rebuked. I think David might have been even relieved that this is now what had to be done and he could blame the woman for deceiving him. According to Job 15, those who seek to deceive others fraudulently are called hypocrites. Notice Job 15, 34 and 5. For the congregation of hypocrites shall be desolate and fire shall consume the tabernacles of bribery. They conceive mischief and bring forth vanity and their belly prepareth deceit. Reflecting upon deception and perhaps other events in David's life, he testifies of the deceitful man in the Psalms. In Psalm 5 and verse 6 we read, Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Psalm 109, 2. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are open against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. His son Solomon, learning much from his father, obviously picks up on this idea. He too might have been reflecting upon the events within his father's house during his youth. In Proverbs 12, verse 20, he says this, Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil. It's a heart problem. But to the counsels of peace there is joy. So having been snared into giving judgment of outright forgiveness, David then tells Joab to finally bring back Absalom from his exile. But he gives a condition. David tells Joab that once Absalom is returned to the kingdom, he is forbidden to see the king. Verse 24, And the king said, Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. Now this again, I believe, shows that David is obviously conflicted. He had been deceived and manipulated into a forced decision. David's decision is calculated and, and perhaps it's even very wise because he still, he still wants to keep distance because he knows that Absalom did wrong. In his conscience, he knows that. But one might ask the question then, if Absalom is forgiven, if he's returning to the kingdom, why not then restore him? Why not reconcile entirely? Either you're going to forgive totally or you're not. It's no halfway. And yet that's basically what David is doing. Perhaps he, he wants to show that even though Absalom is restored, he wasn't happy with what he did. So by not fully embracing his son, David perhaps wants to show his disdain for Absalom's crime and his respect for the justice of God, even though he was unable, he was unable to provide a clear sense of that justice. But in my estimation, all of this was just too little too late. A lack of proper judicial proceedings and just decisions had brought David and the entire kingdom to this juncture of critical mass. And we find that he's not even trying to remedy things. He's just making things worse and worse and worse. The next verse provides some context for why Israel so loved Absalom. You think about it. Everybody loved Absalom. You've got this murderous, conniving, deceiving, 
conspirator, and everybody loves him. But in all of Israel, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. He was something to look at. He was a handsome man, a gloriously looking man, statue, perfection, tall, I would imagine, strong, whatever you want to envision as a wonderful, handsome young man. They loved him for his beauty. Israel, superficial Israel, carnal Israel, they loved him for his beauty, but his heart was murderous. He was beautiful. In all of Israel, there was none to be so much praise as Absalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. We shall examine Absalom's beauty and the results of his return to the kingdom next when we continue in our study of the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.